So you had this sort of bizarre scenario of this seven, then 70-year-old retired washing machine repairer getting a phone call from an elite division of the Ministry of Defence at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Sort of an hour or so before we were to interview him about this weird UFO incident he was involved in at that time 32 years before. Um, and so then that sort of raised other questions. Was it him that was being monitored or was it me? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. I hope you had a pleasant week. It is April 15th, 2006. We are back with Nick Redfern, part two of two. Nick Redfern is the author of the new book, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, UFOs and Government Surveillance. And it is an in-depth investigation of government monitoring of those in the UFO field, both in the United States and the UK. It's a fascinating book. You should definitely check it out. You can check out part one at banalofamerica.com. This week, it's part two of two. Here's what we're talking about. We delve into UK ufology, what it was like for Nick to be personally investigated by the powers that be, if you will. Um, present-day ufologists and how much they investigate their own files. We wrap up the discussion of On the Trail of the Saucer Spies with Nick's thoughts on just what the government might know about the UFO phenomenon. For the remainder of the interview, we talk about Body Snatchers in the Desert, Nick's previous book that came out last year, uh, caused quite a fear in ufology, and we talk about that, uh, the subsequent fear, Nick's motivations for writing the book, and any new information he's gotten since the book came out. So it's a veritable update on body snatchers in the desert. We also touch on briefly the Serpo story that's going around nowadays in ufology, and, of course, we wrap up the interview talking about what future projects we can expect from Nick. So that's all in this week's edition of Manal of America Audio. We're going to kick it off momentarily. Let me give you the Nick Redfern bio for those of you who are unfamiliar with Nick Redfern. Nick Redfern is one of the world's foremost authorities on UFOs. His main area of research centers around determining what has been learned about the UFO subject at an official level in Britain. He has spent hundreds of hours at the Public Record Office in London and has uncovered thousands of pages of previously classified Royal Air Force, Air Ministry, and Ministry of Defense files on UFOs dating from the Second World War. He has written for Military Illustrated, I Spy, Fate, 14 Times, Phenomena Magazine, and the London Daily Express newspaper. His previous books include A Covert Agenda, The FBI Files, Cosmic Crashes, Strange Secrets, Three Men Seeking Monsters, and Body Snatchers in the Desert. So he's an accomplished writer, he's a long-time ufologist, and he's going to wrap up the conversation this week here at Banal of America Audio. This interview was recorded on April 2nd, 2006. Nick Redfern, Part 2 of 2 on Banal of America Audio. In the book, there seemed to be a contentious sort of air about, uh, about Nick Pope. Mm. Um, what's the perspective on, on 
that whole branch of uh, the officialdom and, and how they're sort of like the UK version of Project Blue Book. Well, Nick Pope um, is a, an employee of the British Ministry of Defence. He still works for them. Um, and between 1991 to 1994, he worked uh, for one particular branch of the MOD called the Secretariat of the Air Staff. And one of the tasks that the, the air staff has is to investigate UFO reports. Now, most of the reports, by their own admission, that come into the air staff are reports from members of the public, um, because it's like a publicly advertised organisation. Sorry, it's an advertised organisation of the MOD that the public are allowed to know about. Like the um, Blue Book. Yeah, that's right. So if somebody says something, you know, they can phone the Ministry of Defence and. If the operator says, you know, why are you calling? They say, I've seen a UFO. They put them through to the air staff. Yeah. And for the most part, the, the people there, you know, they'll just either take the details over the phone or suggest the person writes a letter. And then they check with um, other organizations, you know, to see if a refueling operation was going on or if there was a satellite going over at that particular time. And then they'll just write back and say, dear Mr. Smith, thank you for your report. We think you saw the planet Venus and that's the close of it. Yeah. So it's very much like... Um, just a, a very, very low scale, down to earth thing with no on site investigations. Um, you know, just like Blue Book, just reports coming in and not much being done with them other than filing them away. Well, in the same way that, you know, when people said in the US when Blue Book was going on that there were also far deeper and more covert investigations going on by other agencies. You have that same situation in England. For example, I mentioned Matthew Williams and Rudlow Manor. There have been long-standing rumours that the intelligence personnel at Rudlow are the people who do the real investigations, yeah. and the, the office at Whitehall, the, at the MOD building at Whitehall, the air staff, that their role is, I guess, it's like the window shop image where people think there's nothing else going on, but really behind the scenes you have all these huge organizations and people think, well, if there's this public group, then that just that must be the beginning and the end of it. Now, Nick Pope doesn't believe there is, you know, all this other stuff's going on behind the scenes. And and personally I believe that he's genuine in that belief. You know, I think he he really did believe that all the information that the government had or has came through his office and, you know, there weren't these other characters doing things behind his back that even he didn't know about. Yeah. But as I point out in the book, there are a number of examples where um, the it's quite clear that the government tried to discredit Nick because he went into the job as like an open-minded skeptic. And when the, the reports that came into his office over the course of the three years he was there, he actually became a believer in in the existence of UFOs and, and wrote a best-selling book in 1996 called Open Skies, Closed Minds. And this was sort of like a, a study of a UFO history, but also broached and touched on the subject of his um, official UFO investigations. And there is evidence that around the time, um, excuse me, that his book was being written and he was doing the research, that he was being watched by the official world as well. Um, a classic example of this um, is Matthew Williams, who I mentioned earlier. Matthew has a background in the government. He used to work for the British government's customs and excise. And one of the things that he would routinely be involved in is if someone was being monitoring, being monitored, sorry, um, they would turn up at somebody's house on the day that the garbage collectors would turn up, but arrive a few hours earlier and literally steal or take you know, that person's garbage yeah. and go through it to see if there's anything incriminating in there. And that actually happened to Nick Pope. 
Um, I mean, Nick himself has spoken about this, how his garbage had been taken um, under sort of odd circumstances. And when it happened, um, he put a note in the, in the next week's garbage saying something like, you know, I bet you thought it would be more glamorous when you signed up, like running around with guns, and instead you, you've got to start yeah. going through my garbage. <laughs> and, you know, th this, was, this happened to him, and, he, you know, he's openly spoken about it. Um, you know, he, he wondered if it could be journalists, but organizations like Customs and Excise that Matthew Williams worked for in Scotland Yard and Division of the Police, they routinely do this. Um, so that was one interesting little um, thing that happened with Nick. Another one was that in 1999 he published a novel called Operation Thunderchild, which was um, a story about like a hostile attack on, on the UK by aliens. Yeah. And coincidentally, round about the same time that the book was published, rumours began to circulate that the British government was going to declassify all of its UFO reports. And I phoned up the Ministry of Defence and spoke to their press office um, and said, you know, is there any truth to this? And they said, no, there's no truth to it at all. And I said, well, where's the story stemmed from? And they said, well, you know, you can get a good indication from the fact that Nick Pope's got a new novel to promote. So they were actually trying to discredit Nick yeah. by claiming that he was basically lying and making up stories about UFOs. Um, and this is something that the Sandman said that because they, the MOD rightly knew that his book would cause waves and would get a huge amount of publicity, they tried to discredit him. And one way was to sort of, you know, see if there's anything incriminating in his garbage. And another one was actually to openly tell journalists like me that the guy was making up fake stories to promote his books. Uh, yeah, which, as I said in the book, isn't a nice tactic, yeah. but it does kind of dovetail and correlate quite nicely with what the Sandman told me about how the, the government did have these tactics in place to discredit Nick if they wanted to. Um, and the fact that I said that Nick's spoken about this as well um, on the record, you know, is a plus too. I mean, he, as I said, he comes to other conclusions. He didn't sort of, sort of take it to that sort of sinister level that I do. But I think, you know, that is a good indication that, you know, if you're in the employ of the government and you start talking about UFOs in a positive way, that you can be watched just in the same way that, you know, a member of the public can. Yeah, and he's he's sort of in a tough position, I think, because he's uh because uh the, does the UFO community in the UK sort of view him with an air of suspicion because he was with the government? Um, well, how, how that sort of like how's he translate over to 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 the to the uh, to the researchers? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I like Nick. He's a nice guy, and he, he wrote the introduction to my first book, and he you know he firmly believes that the UFOs exist, that they're alien, and that they're coming here, and he thinks they're a defence threat. He, his problem he had with the Ministry of Defence was that he didn't think the MOD were treating the subject seriously enough. Now, he perceived that because his office wasn't. That doesn't mean, you know, there wasn't another organization, as I suspect, that does take it very, very seriously. Yeah. Um, most people within the UFO subject, you know, get on fine with Nick. You know, they consider him he's a down-to-earth, quite friendly, chatty guy. And, you know, yeah. he's got no airs and graces about him in that respect. He's quite happy to talk to anybody. Um, I think the UFO community is largely split in terms of, most, I've never really actually come across anyone who thinks he's part of some sinister group and that he's actively yeah. hiding the truth himself. I've never really come across anybody who thinks that. People either believe that there is just this little group and there's nothing else, or that if 
there is a, some sort of hidden group behind the scenes that he didn't know about it. Yeah. Um, you know, nobody actually really, I think, to the best of my knowledge, thinks that he's, you know, the part of this huge conspiracy himself. Um, so most people get on with him fine, and um, you know, I think um, even though I don't agree with him a lot on a lot of things, there's no doubt that when his book came out, that was one of the issues that prompted this big surge in interest in England in the subject, you know, because a lot of the media wrote numerous articles purely because he was a guy from the government saying aliens existed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in that respect, we do have him to thank for that, yeah. even though, you know, I don't agree with him on this issue that his little office was the only one doing things. You know, there is good evidence um, from the files, from testimony of people who worked at this base, RAF Rudlow Manor, that, you know, at the same time that reports were just coming into the Whitehall office that the Rudlow people were actually running around the country like headless chickens, you know, investigating all the significant cases and, you know, telling people not to talk about cases or, you know, arriving in just civilian plain clothes, you know, to avoid detection as to who they were and so on. And um, now I recently heard an interview with him and he said that uh, his successor and, and, the, and, and uh, his office, um, the, the folks who are doing what he used to do, now they're being overwhelmed with freedom of information facts and, and yeah. not so much doing, uh, taking reports. Uh, you probably know more about that than I do. Uh, what, what's that office up to nowadays? Well, what happened, um, Jim, was that prior to the late 1990s, there was no Freedom of Information Act in England. What there was was something called the 30-year ruling. And what that meant was that it, only if government files were, were deemed to be classifiable, that they could only be released after 30 years. So, you know, if somebody reviewed the files from 1964, and said, well, half of them can be released, but half of them have got to be withheld. That half couldn't be declassified until 1994, or couldn't be made available to the public. Yeah. But it was in, but in the 1990s, MPs, members of the British Parliament, and members of the public and protest groups began lobbying the government to say, you know, hey, Canada and America and Australia have got Freedom of Information Acts. We need one as well. And that did start to come into force sort of round about the turn of the century, 99, 2000, 2001. Yeah. And so what a lot of researchers are doing now, and that's quite correct what Nick, Nick has said, is that instead of, you know, just asking for information on policy for UFOs or just asking for, can you tell us about, you know, do you have any reports on this case that occurred last year? You've got numerous UFO researchers you know, just swamping, literally, government agencies with requests, you know, please declassify all your UFO files from 1975 or 1996, or, you know, please check to see if you have a surveillance file on me, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, government agencies can complain about it, but, you know, they're there, we're the taxpayers, we're paying for, to put them in their position, and, you know, I think we have a right to know what goes on. You know, I think in today's world, people think they shouldn't ask questions of government and so on. I think we should. I think, you know, if something's being withheld from us, when it's something like this, we need to know. Yeah. Um, and so it is quite true that, you know, numerous organizations, not just the MOD office that Nick worked in, but countless agencies, you know, British equivalents of the American agencies, have been swamped with freedom of information requests. And it is actually starting to open some doors. I mean, there are actually, I think it's seven or eight pieces of legislation that allow for continued withholding of documentation, like national security, defense of the realm, 
personal privacy, if it identifies the name of a government agent or something like that, then they'll withhold that sort of material. But, you know, they are being as, to their credit, they are, some of them are being as helpful as they can in releasing files. And um, one of the things I talk about in the book um, was something in England in, the, in 1973 and 74 that became known as the Phantom Helicopter. And these were reports that were surfacing throughout central England of, in some cases, just weird lights in the sky, but in other cases, black and unmarked helicopters, which is sort of like a staple part of, you know, the UFO history, um, were being seen and reported. And a couple of files were declassified um, in, I think, the late 1990s to Dave Clark, who I mentioned earlier. And, and purely down to coincidence, about three weeks ago, David got hold of the complete file, apart from one or two pages which have been withheld, and sent it to me. And it actually arrived yesterday. And this is like a, a complete surveillance and investigative file undertaken by Special Branch of these weird helicopters that were being seen. And one of the theories that was being looked at was possibility of it being terrorist-type groups. However, if you look into the bigger UFO scene, and particularly in the States, black helicopters are sort of like a classic angle of the UFO mystery. You know, sometimes where UFOs have been seen, you have these black unmarked helicopters, and yeah. one of the theories is that they are linked to some sort of clandestine military group that is monitoring UFO activity, and they dispatch these helicopters, you know, as like a, a quick response unit to either catch the UFOs in the act or, you know, see what's going on. So, you know, some of the files are now beginning to surface. And now, another thing I want to talk to you about was, uh, uh, you, you mentioned Matthew, Matthew Williams a lot. Um, at the end of the book, you talk about how he got wrapped up in some kind of bogus crop circle story. Yeah. Um, well, that, do you elaborate on that? Because uh, that was really, uh, that was strange, and I wanted to know more about it. Yeah, I mean, where Matthew lives is in the county of Wiltshire, and the little town he lives in is called Devizes, and it's, it's, you know, it's one of these classic English towns that hasn't changed for like 300 years, you know, apart from the introduction of telephone poles and TV areas, it looks like, you know, something out of some old Jane Austen novel. Um, and Matthew um, has always had a big interest in crop circles, and, you know, he, he's quite convinced that, you know, there's a, an unknown force at work with regard to crop circles. But what happened was that, you know, there's no doubt that there is also like a, a man-made hoaxer element to yeah, some of the circles at least. And people, somebody was saying that, well, you know, it's impossible, people just cannot make these things. So what Matthew did was purely and only as like a scientific experiment. He went out to see if he could replicate one of these things and he made the mistake, if you consider a mistake, of, you know, announcing that he was going to do it. Uh -oh. um, and so what he did, he went out and made this formation and said, well, you know, there is an argument for saying that some of these things are man-made because I just made one. Uh, what was odd was that actually Matthew did this on several occasions and even he experienced weird phenomena in the ones that he made, like balls of light hovering over him and things like this, as yeah. if something was monitoring or watching the even the human circle makers and you know, perhaps even interacting with them in some ways, what Matthew actually came to believe. He actually came to the conclusion that you know, people themselves were being manipulated as well to make these things by some higher force, which, you know, is an interesting and strange theory, but that's the conclusion he came to. But what happened was that he reported or said he was going to make this thing and did make it, and because technically, I guess, you know, if a person makes a crop circle in a farmer's field, 
that can be considered as criminal damage. Uh, even though what a lot of people don't know is that when a crop circle's made, the crops invariably aren't broken, they're just laid down flat. And the farmer, you know, when he reaps the corn, can reap all that corn. It's not destroyed, it's not dead. It's just laid flat. Yeah. So it doesn't actually uh, affect, you know, the, the farmer's monetary value of the of the corn every year. Um, but what Matthew did, he made this formation and said he designed it on his computer and of course because he broadcast it, um, he got back or somebody told the, the local police who turned up on his doorstep and said, Matthew Williams, you know, I'm detective sergeant, whatever, and you know, I'm arresting you for causing criminal damage to a field in Wiltshire. And Matthew to date is the only person ever arrested, convicted and he got something like a hundred dollar fine, that was it. <laughs> and a slap on the wrist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for just laying down the corn in this field. But what was more interesting was that um, after he was arrested, the, com the police's computer crime unit, who were the same people who'd arrested Matthew Bevan for computer hacking years earlier, arrested Matthew William, or didn't arrest him, but they confiscated his computer. And when Matthew said, why are you com um, confiscating my computer? They said, well, we want to see if, if there are any other crop circle designs on your computer. And if there are, and we can tie them with some of the designs that have been found in the fields, we're going to prosecute you for making those circles as well. Yeah. You know, just to teach him a lesson. But what the, the Sandman told me, what actually makes more sense, was that, you know, it wasn't just the local police officer in this little town that confiscated his computer. It was the computer crime unit deeply involved in Matthew Bevan and UFO investigations years before. And what the Sandman said was that this really, the only reason Matthew was arrested and charged and his computer confiscated was so computer crimes people and British intelligence could get hold of his computer and, and his hard drive and try and determine if he really was working with subversive groups. and having him arrested on the crop circle thing was really like a trumped up charge to yeah. allow them access to his computer. And it is a verifiable fact that Matthew's computer was confiscated for a full three months. And you know, as I mentioned in the book, the, um, the idea that the British Police Forces Elite Computer Crime Unit would need to confiscate somebody's computer for three months just to determine what sort of crop circle images were on there is absurd. Yeah. And, you know, the, the bigger scenario and the more correct one was the one that Sam had suggested that this was just an ingenious ploy to get their hands on Matthew's computer and, you know, see who he was speaking to and who he was in touch with and what his email inbox and send box contained and, you know, was he speaking to somebody in North Korea or China or was it, as it really turned out, if he was just chatting with UFO researchers and that was it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it does show you some of the ingenious ways that are at work and that can be followed, um, you know, in, and the tactics employed uh, in watching people and surveying them, if you like. Um, and now in the book you cover uh, some of the other fringe elements of ufology that that have drawn the attention of the military, uh, like the animal mutilations and the crop circles, yeah. and uh, most notably uh, jo the whole saga of Jonathan Downs and this mm. and this uh, strange animal mutilations in the zoo. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners in the states will will know about cattle mutilations. You know, these events where cattle have been found predominantly from the 60s onwards in the U.S., sort of drained of blood, organs removed, with what looks like very precise you know, surgical 
procedures, etc., and a lot of UFO reports, and again, black helicopters in the area, um, particularly New Mexico, countless reports from there. Um, what's perhaps lesser well-known um, over here is that Britain itself gets a lot of animal mutilation cases, um, particularly again in the southwest part of the country where you had these UFO reports going back to 1913. And Jonathan Downs, John's a good friend of mine who I've known for years, and um, he runs, um, uh, his, his main interest is cryptozoology, you know, things like Bigfoot and lake monsters, that yeah. sort of thing. And, but John also has a UFO interest, and I guess the, the crossover between the two is, you know, like the, the animal mutilations, cattle mutilations. John's looked into a number of these cases from England, predominantly from the late 70s onwards. One of the most interesting um, was a case that occurred, or a series of incidents that occurred at a place called Newquay Zoo, um, which again is in the southwest of England. And there have been a number of very, very weird killings of animals actually at the zoo and even in the cages in some respects. Again, with the classic blood-drained, yeah. even where it looked like some sort of unidentified substance had been injected into the bloodstream, possibly to like incapacitate them or knock them out. Um, and in the 1990s, John was given access to some British police force files, uh, investigative files on these particular animal mutilations. And, you know, they went into complete full detail um, about these mutilation events. One of the strangest entries in the file actually talks about how one of the, whoever it was or whatever it was was doing these mutilations actually tried to gain entrance into the lion's den. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you imagine, if you pursue human mutilators, you know, as I mentioned in the book, only an idiot's going to try and force, out, force its way in yeah. to the lion's cages. Yeah. Um, but actually something did actually try to prize open or the bars and you know, get two or three in the morning, you know, under cover of darkness and get into the lion cages, which would suggest if someone was or something was doing that, you know, they had that infinite protection, you know, to allow them to do that. Yeah. Um, but he was given these files, which, you know, are, are classic mutilation type events with the police carrying out an in-depth investigation, doing autopsies, finding blood was removed, organs removed with surgical precision. Um, and Special Branch um, launched an investigation, a surveillance investigation of John as well. And looking into this story, the, the fear that Special Branch had, or the concern, was that somebody had leaked this information to John as kind of like a dangling carrot, and then would, they would say, you know, well, we've got more information and more files, and if you do a few little jobs for us, yeah. you know, we'll give you more material. Yeah. And, you know, the fear was, well, that some of these little jobs and that they want him to do would be perhaps, you know, go and take photographs of this military base and, you know, somebody will be allowed to collect them. And then if John was questioned, he'd, he'd turn around and say, well, you know, I'm a UFO researcher, that's why I'm taking pictures or whatever. But the fear was, you know, there was some other underhanded reason. And, you know, there, was ne there actually wasn't. This was another of these cases where it was, there was actually nothing justifiable to it. It was just the case that, you know, John um, had been given these files just by um, a contact that had access to them, but the government had, was, you know, swirling around in its head all these other yeah. scenarios. Uh, but, I mean, regardless of that, it is undeniable that the police force do have these um, files on record of, of classic animal mutilations. And, and, I mean, as a parallel, you know, I mentioned in the book about how I got from the FBI hundreds of pages 
of officially declassified files in the US of animal mutilations. And one of the more interesting things with regard to that was how um, the FBI went out to a conference in Albuquerque in uh, 1979, which was initiated in response to a massive wave of mutilation in that area where the farmers and the ranchers you know, were losing huge amounts of cattle. To, to these mutilators. And again, there's a, as I mentioned in the book, there's a whole piece um, on the way in which the FBI went out to this conference and sat in the audience and, you know, reported on who was saying what. And there were a lot of UFO researchers giving little lectures, you know, 15, 20-minute lectures, and then somebody else would come on stage with their theories. And the FBI recorded all this in their documents. So, you know, it isn't just UFOs per se yeah. that are being watched. It's actually, as you say, offshoots like crop circles and animal mutilations where there's a tangential tie-in or a direct tie-in, um, you know, they're looking into these areas. Um, I also talk in the book about how um, US DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency agents, were in attendance at a conference in Munich, Germany, that had crop circles on the agenda. This was the first European meeting of a, a US group called the uh, Society for Scientific um, Investigation, I think it is, or Endeavor, something like that. Yeah. Um, and DIA personnel were actually in attendance at that conference, uh, which had everything from near-death experiences, psychic phenomena, crop circles on the agenda. So it's you know it's all these spin-off things from the UFO subject as well that the intelligence people are looking into. So you know that's 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 worth, uh, sort of worth bearing in mind as well that it isn't just you know lights in the sky or UFOs. It's sort of pretty much anything that falls under, I guess, like an X-Files type domain yeah. it becomes of interest to the official world. Now, this is sort of off topic, but are there a lot of Bigfoot sightings in uh, the UK, or is that a predominantly American in um, other parts of the world? It's, it's, there's, there aren't a lot of sightings, but actually, um, that's an area I've delved into quite deeply myself. Um, where I used to live in England was a little village called Pelsall. Um, again, which is like where John lives. It's one of these places you know, that hasn't changed. It's actually better, less... I think it was in nine, 1997, it celebrated its 1,000th anniversary. Oh, wow. It's like a really old little town. And um, I used to live about five miles from a place called the Cannock Chase, which is a huge forest in central England. And there have been Bigfoot-type reports there going back. Um, well, the earliest one goes back about 1879. Um, well, it is 1879. Um, but reports of what at the time were called wild men of the woods and uh, the green man and things like this yeah. actually go back about a thousand years in England and I've actually I've dug quite deeply into a lot of these reports um, and there's, there's been a wave of sightings again coincidentally in the Cannock Chase area uh, right now it's ongoing um, and I'm going over there in a couple of months to do some more investigations um, so you do get these reports, and they are broadly similar um, to the American reports. The biggest difference is that a lot of the British reports seem to have more of like a paranormal angle to them, where a lot of the sightings have occurred in the vicinity of like ancient stone circles, like Stonehenge and yeah. places like that, um, which has led a lot of people to think that, you know, if it was just a random animal, why would they occur in these areas of like ancient and archaeological significance, ancient burial mounds, things like that? And this this does lead a lot of people to think that you know there's some sort of paranormal or supernatural thing rather than a, a physical animal. 
Um, but I mean, I've, I've personally investigated a lot of these cases, and you know, there, there's no doubt that people are seeing things, but and something weird's going on. But you know, the size of England—it's you know—it's actually smaller. Britain is smaller than the state of Texas, and the, the idea that you can have like a, a race of wild men or ape men existing without capture for you know millennia kind of stretches the imagination and I think coupled with the fact that there are these weird angles like the stone circle angles yeah that leads me to believe that you know it isn't just a sort of straightforward ape hiding from society that there's something weirder going on tied in you know with supernatural and issues and mythology and legends and things like that yeah well, what was, it, what was it like for you personally uh, to be watched and to be, like, monitored by these folks? Uh, was that unnerving at first? Um, well, obviously it was unnerving at first, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think for me it was probably more interesting than unnerving. You know, I'm not the sort of person who sort of, you know, panics at, uh, you know, everything that sort of happens in yeah. life. I'm sort of fairly laid back. And also, you know, I've sort of dealt with official secrecy and I think you know when it's something like UFOs we need to sort of stand up and and dig for the answers and I think as I mentioned earlier there are some people who you know they get a visit or they're warned and you know they end up quaking at the knees and, and they literally drop everything overnight you know that does work yeah for me you know if somebody says don't investigate this it kind of spurs me on more to investigate yeah yeah <laughs> um so I think that's probably why I wasn't so much warned as such. It was more a case of just seeing what I was doing, which, you know, would, would make sense, I think. Um, but I think what it told me more than anything else, and this is sort of ironic because it kind of blows the government's cover, is if you're investigating things and you're being watched, they're only going to watch the people who are actually onto something. Yeah. You know, if you're investigating something, you're completely barking up the wrong tree, so to speak, as we say in England, um, then nobody's going to watch you because you're, you're no threat and you're not onto legitimate data. I think you're going to be watched more and more actively when you actually are looking into something that they're concerned about. Yeah. So, you know, for me, it's sort of when I realized that I was being watched, it legitimized the idea that what I was investigating was something that was worth them watching and worth them watching me for. Um, you know, it is kind of strange and surreal in one respect to think that, you know, government agencies are putting files together on you and, you know, may even be sitting in the audience at every conference and lecture you do. Um, I wouldn't say, I didn't so much find it unnerving, I just find, I just genuinely find it interesting yeah. because it suggests that at the core there is like a, a genuine UFO mystery and I think you know, my goal has always been to try and find what lies at the heart of the UFO mystery. So I think, you know, it spurs me on um, to do these investigations. And I think, you know, it just depends, I think, on the character of the person involved yeah. um, as to how they respond to it. You know, Albert Bender just dropped everything overnight, you know, when he had his MIB visit in the 50s. Um, some people, you know, they just drop out the subject because they feel they've gone as far as they can, whatever, but, you know, for me, it sort of drives me on to think, wow, if, if they're watching, then, you know, there's really something worth finding. And what kind of stuff actually, like, happened um, in particular when you were being watched? Like, is there any sort of examples you can give that, that sort of, that you know personally happened to you where you were like, my mail was opened, or... Oh, yeah, I mean, I can give you a great example because it turned... It corresponded with a really interesting case I investigated in England in 1996, and 
Some of your listeners will probably know the name of Leonard Stringfield, who was yep. he was probably the the premier collector of reports of crashed UFO cases, and uh, he died in 1994. But he, he got involved in the subject in in the early 50s, um, and he. Um, between 1978 and 1994, wrote about eight or nine status reports um, of all the incoming information he got on various crashed UFO incidents. Well, one of these crashed UFO incidents, which was published in his 1991 report, um, allegedly occurred in the aforementioned Canuck Chase Forest that I talked about, which was actually sort of four or five miles from where I used to live <laughs> uh, in England. And the, the story as it was related to Stringfield came from a guy in the US Navy whose job it was to monitor Soviet um, communication systems. And this guy was obviously like a Soviet translator, and he picked up on a conversation where the Russians had apparently monitored the British government talking about some sort of object that had crashed on the Canuck Chase in Staffordshire. And there was reports, it was obviously described as a UFO, and there were references to bodies being recovered and you know, the military securing the site, etc. Well, this Stringfield published the details in 91, and in 1996, myself and a colleague began digging deeper into this story, trying to track people down and actually tracked down a guy, a member of the public, who um, at this particular time, which was February 1964 or March 64, we're never entirely sure on that, but it was the early part of 64. Um, he was a, a washing machine repairer, and he was driving across the Canuck Chase to just go and repair a, a client's washing machine. Mm -hmm. And um, he, the, in parts, the Canuck Chase forest is very, very thick. It's a huge forest, and he was going down this one stretch of road, and there were police officers and soldiers in the road, and there was a cordon there, you know, and they, they pulled him over and said, where are you going? And he said, well, you know, I've got to get across the chase this other side. And they said, no, you've got to go, you know, back the way you came and, and go all the way around the chase instead of taking the, the shortcut through. And he was angry and said, you know, what's going on? And they said, you know, none of your business, <laughs> you know, just go back where you came from. Um, and he... He was actually a railway enthusiast, a train enthusiast, and he said he always carried a, a camera around, you know, just in case he saw anything he wanted to photograph. And he returned, went back the way he came, and parked further up the road into a sort of like a little um, side road and yeah. just sort of stealthily walked through the forest sort of half a mile to where these guys were. And he said that in the forest itself, which was a slightly open area, um, there was this small triangular-shaped object which was being loaded onto um, the back of a trailer, like a military trailer-type vehicle. And um, there were people civilian, civilian suits, and some who he said were dressed like scientists in, you know, like CSI-type coveralls yeah. um, in the field. Um, and he took a couple of photographs. So when he got home, um, the police had contacted him, or police contacted him, and he was required to go to a nearby police station, and his camera was confiscated, and he was questioned vigorously as to what he was doing in the area and why he was photographing this thing. And as I said, it was like a 12 to 15-foot triangular-shaped thing. But he said what he found most interesting, having an interest in trains and, you know, engineering and whatever, was that this thing didn't have any rivets on it and it didn't seem to have, you know, built out of different parts. It was almost like cast out of a mould. Yeah. Um, he, he said he, he described it almost like a liquid type metal, you know, fluid almost. Yeah. And um, 
he got his camera back eventually, minus the film. Of course. Um, of course. Um, you know, he's, and myself and a colleague interviewed him in late 1996, in December 96, and he, you know, he related this account to us about how he'd seen the thing, how he'd been silenced, etc., etc. You know, we wondered, well, is he genuine or is it just some, you know, just some sort of story? Um, when we got there, and as he was relating his story, he sounded or he was quite nervous, um, you know, we said, well, what's wrong? And he said, well, you know, just before you arrived, he said, I got this phone call from the Ministry of Defence, basically putting the fear of God into him, and, you know, um, the intimation was, don't talk about this particular case. Now, in England, in the same way as over here, you know, you have the Star 69 system, Yeah. Um, you have uh, a similar thing in England called the 1471 system. You dial 1471, it gives you the last incoming number. Now, what was interesting is that military bases in England, for security reasons, normally all their numbers are withheld. Um, you know, they, they phone someone for security reasons. Yeah. Um, we dialed this number and we actually got a military number and it was, we traced it back to an operator service who was responsible for channeling phone calls throughout the central England from military bases to the public, etc., etc. And from there we were able to trace the original call to an army um, installation, not too far, about seven miles away, called Whittington Army Barracks. And the call itself had come from one branch called the Ministry of Defence Guard Service. Um, so you had this sort of bizarre scenario of this seven, then 70-year-old retired washing machine repairer getting a phone call from an elite division of the Ministry of Defence at 9 o'clock in the morning, yeah. sort of an hour or so before we were to interview him about this weird UFO incident he was involved in at that time 32 years before. Um, and so then that sort of raised other questions. Was it him that was being monitored or was it me? because we'd made arrangements to see him and, you know, they realised that he was involved because it was my phone that was being monitored rather than his. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other question was, well, why on this occasion was the number, the phone number of the MOD deliberately unblocked? That kind of suggested one or two things. Either this was like a warning to say, hey, you know, we're watching you and you know we are because we've given you access to the number. Yeah. Or... One of the interesting theories I did wonder was whether or not there was actually like a sympathetic insider trying to reveal the fact that the case was genuine by making it so easy for us to trace it back, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But without compromising his or her real identity. Yeah, but yeah. I never actually really got to the bottom of why that was going on. But, you know, when you talk about surveillance uh, potentially of me, that was one of the more interesting ones was the fact that, you know, within an hour of phoning a witness involved in a major crash retrieval case 30 years before, he gets a phone call saying, don't talk to this guy. Um, so that was a classic example. I mean, another one was the, uh, for example, the, the testimony of the, the Sandman. I mean, just talking about the fact that we were all under surveillance. And yeah. Then there were actually two occasions, well, not actually three occasions, two in person and one by telephone. You know, when I was also questioned, um, you know, what's your motivation for doing this research? In the same way that Robin Cole was questioned at Cheltenham, you know, are you just looking for UFO information? What do you, what do you think about the opinions of Matthew Williams and his research? And, you know, I said honestly that, you know, I'm looking for UFO material and, and Matthew's doing likewise. I mean, at this time, I wasn't aware from the Sandman, obviously, 
what the government's view was, that they actually thought something else was going on. Um, so, but, you know, it's, it's kind of strange, I guess, um, you know, when somebody turns up on the doorstep and flashes an ID card and says, you know, can we come and have a chat for 10 minutes? I mean, it was never, it was never like a sinister man in black type threatening situation. It was actually, I think I mentioned this in the book about how even the guys involved realized that it was sort of a, a strange and bizarre situation for them to be involved yeah. as well. Um, and, you know, in, but in that respect to, to realize that you're attracting official attention is, it's kind of strange, and I mean, the last, as I mentioned also in the book, the last time this happened was actually after I'd moved to the US and got a phone call, and this was based around an interview I'd done uh, with a former MI5, British MI5 government guy, uh, where I had to hand over the tape recording of the interview. It was sort of made very clear to him that, like it or not, you know, you'll, you'll hand over the tape. <laughs> um, you know, so things went on like that, and as I said at the beginning, that... Um, a lot of people in England particularly have snippets of stories like that where it's quite clear that when you put all the pieces together, you do have this bigger picture of overall um, you know, surveillance of the, of the research community. And um, now, like you alluded to in the book at the end, um, is, it, is it possible uh, that, that uh, what's going on how they're sort of revealing now that, that, that we thought there were subversives in the UFO community and that's why we're watching you. Is it possible now that they're just doing sort of a backtrack move where they're like, you know, we better come up with some plausible reason why we're watching these UFO guys because we can't tell them it's because, you know, we want to find out more about UFOs, so let's tell them yeah. we were checking out to find communists or something. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I mean, you know, that, that's one of the things I briefly touched on uh, was the idea that the... There's no doubt, you know, that everybody and his brother in the subject was being watched. The the official story is that it's been done for, as, as I said, you know, subversive reasons and things like that. But, you know, it's not impossible. You know, I wouldn't fall down into the dead faint if it was proven that that in itself was a cover and that it really was purely just for the UFO angle. Yeah. And that this was like an ingenious ploy uh, in the event that somebody uncovered details of it. You know, it's like, oh, well, let's just tell them we think they're communists or something like that. That would be a very good cover story. And, you know, it's something that when you're dealing with whistleblowers and government people and you're interviewing them, you know, you always have to be aware that they're only going to tell you what they want you to know. Yeah. And it is it is entirely possible that that could have been, you know, some sort of ploy to where, to kind of downplay their involvement or their reasoning for being involved away from the UFO angle and, and towards something else. Um, my own personal belief is probably that the Sandman and several other people uh, overplayed the, the communist angle and underplayed the UFO angle. And I think in reality, it's probably both avenues were, were explored. And the reason I say that is because if it was purely the political angle, you wouldn't have, for example, the surveillance of alien abductees. You know, yeah. people who said they've been you know, taken on board ships by aliens and probed and so on. You know, there's, there's no political motivation there. And yet, uh, you know, I've got a whole chapter in the book on the way in which alien abductees were watched. So they, that's quite clearly being done purely for the UFO angle. Yeah. Um, so that actually is a good pointer towards the idea that this is being done in part at least purely for the for the UFO side of things. Um, 
and that's actually um, one of the areas that Greg Bishop, a friend of mine, turns up in. Greg um, was corresponding with a well-known um, alien abductee and author named Dr. Carla Turner. And Greg told me um, quite clearly about how pretty much all the mail correspondence that they sent between the two of them arrived having been opened and, you know, resealed with scotch tape or whatever and done in a really clumsy way so the, the, the two recipients would know that somebody had opened it before it had arrived. Yeah. You know, and that suggests that somewhere along the line, you know, the post office was somehow involved, you know. I mean, there are, I looked into this and there are regulations where in like a national security issue, government agencies have the right, you know, to walk into a post office and say, please check the mail from this address and if you have anything outgoing or incoming, you know, you're to provide it to us, you're not to send it. Um, you know, there actually are quite um, usable and regular ways in which that piece, specific piece of legislation is used in England and the States. But again, you know, to do it in such a clumsy way as to just tear the envelopes open and just reseal them, that's, that is done as like a psychological thing, I think, to spook the person out. Yeah. And then, like you said, how there, how there, uh, there could be two different groups sort of uh, working. There's always a chance that one group may have been looking for this, the subversives and the communists while, yeah. you know, some of them may get filtered up the ladder to the UFO control group type situation. Yeah, I mean, a good example of the, the, the specific UFO um, angle of all this with respect to abductions is how I talk about in the book. Um, you know, a lot of people who talk about having been abducted are very often young women you know, sort of late teens, 20s, 30s, and there's several cases I relate in the book, a number of which are taken from official documents where women had either reported seeing these balls of light outside the windows late at night, or in one case uh, where a woman was driving home late at night in England in 1966, and this thing had uh, sort of beamed some sort of light down to her car, and it affected the headlights, and did some damage to the paintwork, and it gave her a feeling of nausea, and she actually felt very, very ill. Um, she got home late and told her parents, and um, somebody came out from a nearby Air Force base and investigated and interviewed her extensively, and the, there's a reference in there to somebody else who supposedly made contact with the, the people, the creatures, um, from this particular UFO. And, it, and it, what it actually sounded like was some sort of covert group that was monitoring abductions and had figured that this late night drive home in which the woman had, you know, a car had been stopped and there were all sorts of these weird medical angles to it, that this was like a, somebody fishing for a, what they believed was like a, an, alien, an early alien abduction account. Um, and there are several others. Um, one I relate in the book um, from a woman living in Texas, actually, and she um, was actually personally visited by representatives of U.S. Air Force intelligence in uh, the early 1970s, and you know, was told outright that yes, we have this project, and you know, we're asking people who had this experience not to talk about the fact that we're speaking to them, but you know, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to you because we're concerned about citizens being kidnapped, as they called it at the time, before the term alien abductions, you know, was introduced. Um, you know, we're concerned that citizens are being taken away against their will and we want to know why these creatures are doing it and what the, yeah. their aim and their role is. So, you know, again, this has nothing to do with the political angle. This is just purely and simply 
a covert UFO investigative group, you know, monitoring people in the subject. And um, now, somebody who's like a ufologist present here, like myself, could they check out to find out if they even have an FBI file? Is it something they have to tell yeah. you? Yeah, the way it works is that if you want to get hold of an FBI file on you or somebody else, if it's somebody else, you either have to get their written permission and, and they also have to play, you know, supply something like a photocopy of a passport or a driving license. Um, and they have to sign a letter saying, you know, I, John Smith, hereby declare that, you know, Tim has the permission to file a request to my file. Or if, if they're no longer alive, if they're dead, you can file um, a request yourself. You know, you could file a request for a researcher who died in the 60s. All you would need is to find an obituary to prove that the person was dead. Yeah. Um, so, but if, if it's you yourself, you're quite within your rights to, you know, send a letter to FBI headquarters to the Freedom of Information Office and saying, you know, under the terms of the Freedom of Information Act, I hereby request access to any and all files held by the FBI on me and I require that you send them to me, etc., etc. Um, sometimes, actually, um, they'll admit to having them, but they won't release them. I mean, William Moore, Bill Moore, who was the co-author of the first book on the Roswell story, yep. which was called The Roswell Incident, he um, filed a request for his FBI file, and even in the 90s, his FBI file was up to, like, 70 pages, and most of which were still classified. I think at the time, he managed to get hold of something like six pages. Um, and Stanton Friedman, um, a well-known figure in you know, Roswell research, um, the FBI admitted to having a file on him, but they refused to tell, or re refused to reveal details of how long the file was, and they refused to tell, tell him how, what the classification of the file was, whether it was restricted or secret or top secret. Um, you know, they wouldn't even discuss that. That shows the extent to which, you know, the secrecy surrounds not just UFOs, but, but people in the subject as well. Like, do people tell you, like, if you talk to people and they're like, I've got my file, has never come up when you talk to other people, like, uh, when you do the research for the book and stuff, and um, is that oh. some researchers do, or is that just something that they don't bother to try because they figure they're not going to get anything? Yeah, actually, it's a lot of the latter. A lot of the time, people think, well, you know, I'm not going to get it, and they might charge me search fees for looking at, like, 50 or $100, which occasionally they will do. You know, they'll say, okay, we'll look for your file, but it's going to take us three days of manpower. Please send us a check, you know, $50 or whatever. So sometimes people don't do it. But, I mean, there are people who, as I said, Bill Moore vigorously pursued his, as did um, Stan Friedman, and really just didn't get anywhere. Um, it is more often the case that the, the files that are surfacing are those that, you know, relate to people who died 30 or 40 years ago, um, like Adamski or uh, people like Van Tassel and people like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if you're a living person and you think that, you know, you've had some sort of experience, you're quite within your rights to, to file a request and that the, the FBI is required to respond in something like 30 days. Um, to, to the initial request. I mean, it may take them longer to find the files and decide if they can be released. Yeah. But they, they do have to confirm, you know, receipt of your letter. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I've filed Freedom of Information requests and I've received the files like five years later. Oh, wow. You know, but that's, sometimes it's due to a backlog. Sometimes it's just more that they, they take their time in determining can all the information be released or then they have to check 
you know, if, if he mentions the name of an FBI agent who was working for the, I don't know, the, the Los Angeles office of the FBI in the 1950s, they have to track down and see if he's still alive. And if he's still alive, or his name's got to be taken carefully excised from every single page of the documents. Yeah. And they have to do all that. Kind of like that thing, you know, the, the big controversy that broke, you know, with the naming of the CIA personnel a year or so ago. Yeah. Um, it's like that. But very often you do get this sort of situation where um, people do file requests, but other times they just think, you know, what's the point? So. Yeah. And, and, like, what about when, um, when a pretty well-known person in the field dies? Is there usually like a like a motion to try and get some information on on them? And I'm I'm thinking uh, I heard that there was something came out on Phil Class like right after he died. Yeah, what happened was when Class died recently, um, several people wrote to the FBI trying to get his file. And as I said, when a person's dead, anyone can access that or can appeal for that file to be released. Um, you know, you don't have to be a relative, family member, or anything at all. Yeah. Um, if they release, if they decide it can be declassified. They'll send it to you. Um, but even with the Phil Class file, you know, there were a few documents that were withheld. And there were a few references. I mean, we know Class was involved in several um, things which just aren't in the files anyway, which suggests that, you know, they have, turned, they've either ignored the request or are just outright saying there's nothing in the files when, when we actually know there is. So, uh, yeah, that's problematic as well. And, um, what about guys like John Mack or Eugene Malov or Betty Hill? Uh, those three have died recently. Is he just not going to get as much information for like a like a decade or two afterwards? You think or no? I mean, if if a person you know dies and you want to file a request, you should if if the files are, can be declassified, you should be able to get the stuff you know within a couple of weeks. You shouldn't have to wait ten years or fifteen years. It's just that you know I think. It's just a case of, of finding people who are prepared to, you know, do the digging and, you know, when the government says, no, we've not got anything, then just press further and to say, yeah. well, you know, here's evidence of, of an interview they gave where they said they'd written a letter to the FBI, so that letter must at least be on file with you. So where is it? You know, it just needs someone who can, you know, keep pushing and pushing. But I wouldn't be at all surprised, you know, if, if files did turn up on people like Betty Hill throughout the years. Um, you know, it's, as I said, it's just finding the person who knows enough about the case or the person and who's got obituaries and, and yeah. whatever to, to actually do that. So. Yeah, it just takes the link work pretty much. Mm. Now, based on all your research into the UFO field, uh, what do you think is going on here? Um, does the, what does the government know, do you think? I think as far as UFOs are concerned, I think there's two things. Well, actually, I think there's three things going on. I think there's, a gen, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a genuine UFO mystery. You know, there's all sorts of theories that it's aliens, that it's, you know, some, something interdimensional that coexists with us. You know, you even have sort of the more extreme theories like time travelers or... But, you know, regardless of what the truth is, I'm convinced that there's an unknown presence, UFO presence from somewhere else. There's no doubt about that in my mind. I think also, I think some UFOs are... For example, you know, classified military aircraft that we don't know about. And I think the government, you know, uses the UFO mythology because it acts as a good cover. If somebody tests flies, you know, a next generation stealth aircraft, if somebody inadvertently sees it, you know, they start spreading tales about little green men and it gets forgotten about. 
boy gets derided and laughed at, unfortunately. Yeah. So that's that's the two issues. As far as what the UFOs are, are I think you have the genuinely unexplained ones, and you have uh, unacknowledged advanced technology that we're flying as well. Um, but I think the the other area that comes into play is where the government itself actively spreads disinformation um, to confuse researchers and to send them down, you know, the wrong path. You know, researcher John Smith's looking into this particular case and he's going to uncover some sensitive materials. So one particular agency then gives John Smith completely bogus material, but which sounds really fantastic and it, get, it gets his attention. And, you know, he then chases down this completely fake path and, you know, he forgets about the other material that's idea that's arguably more important. Yeah, like what happened so, with Paul Benowitz. Yeah, exactly. With Paul Benowitz, you know, they he was looking into some interesting things and then they deflected him into all sorts of other areas. So I think that's there's a lot of manipulation of the subject, but at the core of it there is a subject and it's a mystery and, and it is and it belongs to someone else if you like. And do you think that some, uh, like somewhere deep in the high levels of government that uh, there is a core group that knows what's going on? Or do you think they're as clueless as we are when, and, and sort of maybe whatever they knew 50, 60 years ago is yeah. starting to get lost to the generations? I think, I think for the most part, but, you know, government agencies that collect information, you know, often they report to higher departments and the, the ones actually collecting the information, like in the special branch of the FBI, they may actually not know what, who, why it is that they're being asked to collect this information. You know, yeah. it's like you say, Agent Smith, go out and sit in the audience, report back on what this person says and file a complete report and thank you very much. Then that goes up the chain of command. You know, when people talk about the government knowing this or the government hiding that, you know, the, the government is like a catch-all term for numerous agencies. And I think, you know, I, I don't believe for the most part, like the Senate or, you know, the uh, departments like that or the FBI, your average FBI agent probably doesn't know any more, probably less than the we know. Yeah. But I think what happens is that this material is collated and collected and put together and it does go to some sort of black box organization. Now, you know, some people have said it's this so-called Majestic 12 group, like an ultra high level organization that gets its funding through black projects where, you know, it doesn't, the funding doesn't turn up on the congressional record or whatever. Uh, you know, kind of like an Iran-Contra group. Yeah. Um, you know, where it's untraceable, the funding's untraceable, and the membership's sort of unofficial. Yeah. Personally, I, I think something like, whether it's an MJ-12 type group or what it is, I think something like that exists, and it's to that organization that the information goes, and it's those people who who know the truth. Now, it may not be a huge organization, you know, it may be 50 or 100 people who are like the cleared elite to yeah. know what's going on, and everybody else just, even in the military and the intelligence world, just has fragments based on what they're ordered to do. Yeah. Um, but I do think, yeah, somewhere somebody knows the truth, and whatever that truth is, it's so, either so fantastic or so disturbing that a decision has been taken that, you know, we can never tell people what it is. We can, you know, we just keep collecting information and watching it and see who's talking to who, but as far as the material evidence is concerned, you know, there's some reason why it cannot be revealed. And one of the theories that's been suggested is that, 
you know, if captured, if crashed UFOs are being captured and there's evidence of really advanced technology, and we now perhaps understand the rudiments of that technology, it may be that, you know, the fear is if we introduce that technology into the world, it could actually sort of upset the economical state of the world. Yeah. Can yeah. you imagine if there is some sort of anti-gravity technology being hidden by the elite and it bankrupted the oil-making nations overnight? Well, I mean, imagine the, the Middle East is a volatile place at the best of times. Yeah. But you imagine if all those nations, the oil-producing nations, were bankrupted overnight because this new technology existed, yeah. that could actually yeah. result in, you know, an escalating war and even third world war or something, if these people think they're going to be bankrupted and their entire country is ruined. Um, I think that's, that is one plausible fear, I think, that could lay behind the secrecy, not just the fact that these things are coming here, but the, the offshoot implications for world economies and even things like world religions and whatever, so um, things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, you moved from the UK to the US? Yes, yeah, my wife's um, American, and I moved over in um, 2001. She's from uh, she's from sunny Texas, which is where we live. So. Nice. I really like the line of my listeners and claim that I'm calling you in England, but I won't. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> it's uh, still an American time. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we actually met at a conference. Um, she's not she, she has an interest in paranormal things, and she just happened to go along to this conference uh, that I was speaking at. We got chatting and talking, and just stayed in touch and. You know, I'd come over here, she'd go over there for a month at a time, and, you know, we just sort of hit it off and, and just got together like that. That's so. great. Um, now, your last book, Body Snatchers, uh, that came out last summer, right? Yes. And what, that's a pretty quick turnaround for, for a new book from Well, you know, now. Yeah, I guess, you know, because I, you know, I work as a writer full-time, I don't have, like, a nine-to-five job. I can sort of apply myself... Um, you know, on a full-time basis to writing. You know, a lot of people are in the position, you know, they've got a full-time job, they don't get home until six or seven. Yeah. And they can only do sort of an hour or so at night. You know, with me, it's it's my entire job. You know, I can sort of apply eight hours a day, nine to five, on writing. So I try and get, you know, a book out per year if I can. Oh, that's awesome. Um, now, just touching on Body Snatchers a little bit. Uh, well, Body Snatchers... <clears throat> pretty much offered an alternative view of uh, what happened in Roswell in 1947. And um, now I'll confess that I haven't actually read the book yet. I've been so busy and, um, you know, uh, luckily I had a chance to read on, on the trail of the saucer spies. Okay. But, um, I heard all about Body Snatchers last summer. It was quite a furor over it. Yeah. Well, Body Snatchers was, I guess, one of these things that, um, you know, it sort of made me, within the UFO community, kind of made me the maybe the next worst thing to Saddam Hussein almost. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, um, I mean, my view is that, you know, there's no doubt that there's a genuine UFO mystery, but I think we need to examine each case on its own merits, you know, yes. rather than lumping everything in one unified basket, if you like. But what happened was that over the, from 96 through to about 2003, I interviewed a number of, old-timers in the military and the intelligence world, mainly from America, but one from England, who basically said that the, the crashed UFO story at Roswell was a cover for experiments, that been, human experimentation that had been done, things like high-altitude exposure, balloon tests, you know, 
Bear in mind this was 60 years ago, determining what happens if you you know, use people in high altitude balloon tests, how is the human body affected and things like this. And supposedly some of these people were Japanese prisoners of war brought over at the end of the Second World War and then utilized in various experiments. And it just so happened to be the Roswell one that leaked out because members of the public stumbled onto the crash. Um, I mean, what I did with the book was to really put the story out so people could see what I'd been told. Yeah. You know, rather than to say, hey, you've all been duped. You know, that was never my, although some people perceive that's what I was doing, that was never my goal. You know, my goal was never to say, hey, I've uncovered the truth, and, you know, you're all idiots who gave it wrong. It was to say, you know, I've interviewed these people over the last six years, and this is what they told me. Can we take it any further? Is yeah. It true? Is it the truth, or is it disinformation? So that's what I did. I put the story out so people could see, you know, what I'd uncovered, and some people took it on board, others felt, you know, it was some sort of disinformation ploy to hide the fact that aliens really did crash at Roswell. And, you know, as I've said in, in online debates and, you know, at some of the news groups and on, I've never denied the possibility that I could have been fed disinformation because as an author I would have been the ideal person to get the story out there. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest problem that, you know, regardless of what individually we all think about Roswell, the biggest problem is the fact that it, it was 60 years ago and literally pretty much everybody involved is dead. Yeah. And the files haven't surfaced, so it becomes a case of he said, she said, you know, I believe this, I believe that. And it's almost at that stalemate point where you know, you can't bring back the dead. Yeah. So the only other way is to get the files. And if the files don't surface, we are left with these fragmentary old-timer accounts. Um, you know, one old-timer says this, but this old-timer says that. Um, so that was basically what I did. It was, it was a highly controversial, different scenario, but I put it out so people could see what I'd been told and really to see if it would open any other doors or if it would, you know somebody would come forward and say, well, hang on a minute, you know, I was part of a disinformation scheme and, and I was responsible for this disinformation scheme. That's why I know it's not true and, and aliens really did crash. So, um, you know, and I felt it was important to put it out. Yes. So at least we would have leads that could be followed up on. But, um, you know, there's no doubt it's, it's highly controversial, <coughs> purely because Roswell is seen as, you know, one of the, if not the premier case, if you like. Yeah, were you surprised at the uh, at the furor that, that erupted after the book came out? Um, no. <laughs> I, I figured before, I was sort of braced beforehand that, um, you know, I was going to be uh, castigated here, there, and people were going to be, you know, demanding blood and everything else, <laughs> which almost happened. Um, but, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, I think we need to debate cases, and um, regardless of what we may want to believe or not want to believe, if there's inf other information out there, it does require us to, to look into it. Yeah. Um, because, you know, all of us in the subject are looking for the truth, but I think we need, we need to be grounded. Um, sometimes it actually works to the government's advantage because... And this is not meant as any in a disrespectful way, but a lot of people are so full on believers that they are in a particular subject or a particular case that they they become easy to manipulate because 
you can tell a government agent can tell them what they want to hear and they'll believe it. Yeah. When in actual fact that's they're being manipulated. And so I think that although it's difficult, you know, we need to try and steer away from belief systems and kind of take a a detached approach and just look for the facts regardless of where they lead and even if they say something you know we don't necessarily want to hear. Um, so. Now did uh, last it's been like almost nine months or so since Body Snatchers came out. Mm. Have have any new leads opened up with that or what any sort of new information come out since the book came out? Yeah, I mean there's there's been probably actually around about twenty people either a few old timers, or for the most part, family members who said, you know, my grandfather told me this and that, who have suggest, suggested that they support that scenario. But in saying that, there are other people who've come forward who've said, you know, that back in the 50s you know, and the late 40s, that whole scenarios are put forward in the event that they might want to be used or need to be used. And one of them was this idea, you know, involving Japanese people when in actual fact that was a cover. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, that's again the problem, is that you've got credible people both giving contradictory views. Yeah. Now that may, that's probably only because that's what they were told. You know, they're just looking, they're just telling me what they were told, um, and who knows who was deceived or who wasn't. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's still a case that some people are saying, yeah, it's the truth, and others saying, no, you know, I know it was disinformation because I know one of the guys who was involved in this project. And it seems to be the case that if it is disinformation, that the, uh, the story was put together back in the 50s, but was never used. Yeah. You know, because it was seen as too controversial, because then it would attract too much attention, which argue, arguably it would, you know, in some ways, using prisoners of war in high altitude tests, ironically, in some ways, is more controversial than the idea that aliens might really have crashed. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's what several people have said, that this idea was put together decades ago and it was just shelved. Yeah. And, you know, some people have said that maybe my people who I interviewed genuinely believe it, but they've actually read the old disinformation files, not, re not realizing that it was disinformation. Yeah. So it's like a really convoluted story, and I think, even from my perspective, it doesn't help me to say this, but unfortunately, I'm not entirely sure 60 years on we'll ever still get the answer, or if, you know, 100 years from now, people like me and you are going to be having phone conversations saying, huh, I wonder what really happened to Russell. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that would be, be horrible if that was the case. It would be unfortunate, given all the work that's gone into it. But yeah. unfortunately, I, I could see how that, would be the scenario, um, you know, that it becomes a point where everybody is dead and, you know, the files can't be found. And I wouldn't actually be surprised, as I've mentioned to quite a few people, that today's government, per se the government, probably doesn't know what happened at Roswell. I think if anybody knows, it is like this small inner group yeah. hidden away somewhere. I'm not quite sure, you know, maybe they inform the presidents, you know, when they get elected, but your average person, even in the CIA, FBI, NSA, probably has lesser knowledge of Roswell than we do, yeah. because they're not cleared to know. It's just this maybe 100, 200 people in this semi-official hidden group that do know the real story of what happened. And, um, yeah, like, somebody, uh, somebody had my message board joked, um, is this, is the new, is the on the trail of the saucer spy sort of an olive branch to ufology, uh, making good because, of, because he went after the Roswell story? 
That's sort of oh, a no, joke. no. I know. That was, that, that was yeah, more no, of a joke than anything. Oh, okay. But no, I mean, I mean, even if it was a joke or no, I mean, the, you know, as I said, I, I think it's important that we treat each case on its own merits. Yeah. You know, and, and Roswell was a book um, on one case, and you know, if people take the information on board or they don't, that's fine. You know, I don't. I'm not going to have a sleepless night over it. <laughs> um, you know, and, and with this book. Um, it was purely a case that I found evidence that a lot of people in this subject were under surveillance, and so it's an interesting story, so let's put that story out. You know, if people take it on board, that's fine. If they don't, that's fine too, you know. Um, you know, I don't feel a need to apologize for what I do, um, but I do feel it's, you know, all of us in the subject, if we've got interesting information, whether everybody else agrees with it or not, I think it's important to put it out. Yeah. So we can at least try and determine what the full picture is. So that that's really the, the only motivation behind it. Yeah. Um, the uh, one other little thing I want to ask you about was this uh, Serpo story that's been going around for the last few months. Oh yeah. Um, have you done much following on it or or what? Um, I, I followed the story. I mean, this again for some of the listeners who might not be aware, the Serpo story is it's a series of like an an anonymous series of communications from a guy or possibly more than one person, who had insider knowledge of supposedly some sort of exchange program in the 60s where some trained personnel astronauts, if you like, traveled to uh, an alien planet and, um, you know, to see their society and civilization, then came back and, you know, aliens came here and were studied, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the theories are kind of similar to my Body Snatchers book, that some people think it's verifiably real and this exchange program really went on. Other people think, you know, it's some sort of disinformation program for some obscure reason. Um, I, the problem is because it only really kicked off sort of last November, December, I just don't think, although there's a lot of information in, I just don't think enough research has been done to sort of answer the question fully yes. as to what the motivations are who was doing it, why they were doing it. I think it's something, it's definitely worth following because it's, it's, it is getting a huge following. Um, and I think the more information that comes out, the more people that are interested, it's going to uncover more facts or fiction or, or whatever it is or disinformation. Yeah. Um, I just think, you know, although it's a great story, it's sort of too early stages to say too much. And that, that's not me, that's genuinely not me, you know, skirting around the issue. Oh, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's just that it is so early that, you know, put it in the grey basket. Yeah, until we get more information through, hopefully. Yeah, exactly. Um, what do you see for ufology um, in the near term and in the long term? I know I, from what you were saying uh, in the course of this interview, obviously it sounds like you're obviously in favor of, uh, of an open disclosure on the UFO uh, secret or whatever, you know, some more information yeah. from the government on UFOs. Where do you see things heading in the next, you know, five, ten years? Mm. Well, I think, you know, when it comes to open disclosure, it's like I've said to people before, at the height of the Cold War, you know, everybody, whether you're in England or you're America or Russia or, or wherever, everybody lived under the threat of nuclear war every day. You know, it never happened, thank God. Yeah. It could have done. And, you know, we didn't all sort of have nervous breakdowns and go run into the mental asylums or whatever. We just got on with our day-to-day -day living and hoped it didn't happen. And I think that even if there's some terrible secret behind the UFO thing, the same thing would happen. You know, can it be any worse than being 
annihilated in a nuclear holocaust, you know, whatever the truth is behind the UFO mystery. So I think in that respect, the public should know, because if we can handle the Cold War and threat of nuclear war, even if there was something terrible, which there might not be, behind the UFO mystery, we can handle that as well. So that's why I think there should be disclosure. As far as what the UFO research community should be doing, I think, you know, it's always valuable to log things like lights in the sky reports or how many reports of this type of UFO have been seen or how many sightings occurred over in New York last year. Yeah. But I think, I think the answers, if anybody's got the answers, I think it's going to be governments or government agencies. You know, they're the ones with radar, with planes, with the capabilities to investigate these things. And so I think that although, you know, the answer could come in any way at all, I think, you know, pursuing what the government knows is probably likely to provide more of the answers, because if anybody knows on Earth, they're going to be the ones. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the other areas is, like, UFO crash retrieval stories like Roswell. You know, if anyone out there listening, um, you know, and this has been rumoured on occasion, has, you know, fragments of the materials, you know, somebody's grandfather was at the crash site and stuck a little piece in his pocket or whatever, you know, instead of handing it in. Um, you know, if something came along like a piece of evidence that could be tested, you know, if it was, you know, a finger from a body found at Roswell or a little piece of metal and it could be analysed its DNA or its, you know, its, it, the structure of the materials, that would instantly answer the question of, you know, is it extraterrestrial or not, if it contained, you know, unknown elements or the DNA was unlike anything on Earth. Yeah. That would answer the question overnight. So I think pursuing the government angle is one area that over the next five, ten years, you know, that is vital. And also doing our utmost to try and uncover some sort of physical evidence that can be analysed and where there would be irrefutable proof that this couldn't have originated on Earth. And then, you know, you don't even need a full body, you don't even need President Bush or whoever standing up and saying they exist. If you've got this thing that can be analysed and proven, then, you know, we've answered the questions ourselves without getting the official um, answer. And I think the one other area that we definitely need to kind of improve our status with is with the media. You know, the media, unfortunately, a lot of the mainstream media you know, poke fun and make jokes about UFO researchers and the subject. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because they're quite ignorant of the history of the subject. And I think, you know, things like press packages, um, you know, send out packages of press packages of documents and briefings showing how serious the subject's been taken and the credible people that have spoken on the record. Yeah. I think if journalists realise that that we would have a better position with them and the better position and relationship we had with the media, we would be able to get our message across better and I think, you know, we would get more done. So I think that's an area that we need to improve on is the relationship with the mainstream media because, you know, they're the ones speaking to the public as well. Yeah, so you think you follow needs better public relations pretty much? Yeah, I think that would help a lot, yeah. Um, and are you hopeful uh, that, that you'll get uh, like a solid answer to the UFO question in your lifetime uh, as you go along in this? Are you getting more hopeful or are you sort of like you're not at the point now where you're ready to throw up your hands and say, well, it's never going to happen? Um, I'm hopeful that we would get the answers. Um, and I think diligent digging and searches will get the answers. I'm less hopeful that the answer is going to come from the government. Yeah. You know, I think 
you know, people say, well, one day the government's going to release this information, but my argument is what president is going to want to say, well, here's the information, but I've also got to admit we've lied for the last 60 years. Yeah. You know, I don't, unless the government had a reason to release the information, I don't think he would just go ahead and do it. So I'm less hopeful that it's going to, or less likely, I think, that it's going to come through the official angle. Yeah. Um, but I think more likely either an incident would occur that couldn't be denied, you know, the government would have to put its hands up and say, well, okay, you know, if there was like a crash in New York City or something like that, yeah, you know, and a UFO came down or somebody had, as I said, you know, a sample of something or something was leaked out of an official establishment, yeah, which was undeniable, or, you know, that it's, it's down to us to find, you know, the, the UFO research community to find the answers and then present it to the media who then, you know, publicise it and then the government would have to admit to it. Yeah. So I, th I think it's, you know, if the government's not going to say it, it's down to us and I'm confident that we can find the answers, but I know for a fact that unless we really dig deep and uh, dedicate it to it, you know, it, it could slip out of our hands. So what can we expect for, from you uh, in the future here? What, what, what do you have in the pipeline? Um, that's a good question. I'm always sort of, you know, looking um, a year or two sort of down the line with books. Um, one of the um, areas that I, excuse me, one of the areas that I've been looking to, um, it's sort of an offshoot of the UFO thing, is the, the Chupacabras mystery. Oh, really? Yeah, in Puerto Rico. I've made a number of trips, trips to uh, Puerto Rico looking for and investigating this creature that, you know, this sort of blood-sucking, half-alien, half-giant bat-type creature as it's being described. Yeah. Um, it's been seen in the vicinity of UFO encounters and it's been responsible for an numerous animal deaths. And I've spent a lot of time, you know, weeks at a time on the island just tracking down witnesses, police officers, investigators. And uh, the most recent trip I made was in September of last year. I went with a, a team from a Canadian TV company. And we spent uh, quite a long time on the island, you know, travelling around and interviewing all sorts. There's no doubt in my mind that there's a something weird is definitely going on there, and, and something is loose, you know, in the rainforests and the jungles of the island. So that's I'd like to get further involved in um, trying to resolve that issue. Yeah. Well, if not resolve it, at least you know get all the on-site in, information out. And that's something I always encourage people to do: is you know, don't just take somebody else's word for it, or just read books. If you know, if you're able to go out there and do your own investigation, exactly, yeah. You actually uncover a huge amount, a larger amount of material than you ever would, you know, just reading books and even mine. <laughs> well, <laughs> what a segue. Well, the, well, the book is really good. I really enjoyed it a lot. Oh, thanks, Tim. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just really fascinating. I really enjoyed a lot of the stuff too on the UK UFO scene because you, you, you don't find too much stuff on that, at least on this on this shore. No, you don't. Um, that's one of the reasons, you know, I wanted to include that because I thought, because it's actually quite similar to the American things, people might be interested to know that it's, it parallels over there what's going on over here as well. Yeah. And uh, the book is On the Trail of the Saucer Spies, UFOs and Government Surveillance, and it's available uh, at all booksellers, right, online and uh, in bookstores too, you think? Yeah, wherever wherever books are sold, good ones and bad, you'll find it. Nice, nice. Do you have a preferred uh, way for people to get them or just get them how they can get them? 
Um, the best, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the quickest way is probably you know, Amazon or the, the publisher's website, which is um, anomalistbooks.com. You can just click on there, and there's, there's links to Amazon sites all around the world okay. on, on the anomalist sites. So that's probably the easiest way. All right. And, um, and the other books are Body Snatchers in the Desert, the, the Horrible Truth at the Heart of the Roswell Story, Three Men Seeking Monsters, Covert Agenda, the British government's UFO top secrets exposed, and Strange Secrets, real government files on the unknown. Those are your other books. And obviously the most recent one on the trail of the saucer spies, UFOs and government surveillance. Check it out. It's an awesome book. Nick Redfern, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. Big, huge thanks to Nick Redfern for stopping by, giving us so much time going so in-depth on his new book, On the Trail of the Saucer Spies. You can find more information about Nick, as he said, at his website, www.nickredfern.com, and that's N-I-C-K-R-E-D-F-E-R-N.com. Big thanks to Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. If you're a Ben All of America audio listener and you haven't checked out their columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com, you got to check them out. They're fantastic stuff. If you're a frequent Ben All of America audio listener and you want to discuss the audio series with other listeners, we have a message board. It's time I mentioned it on the show. There's a great community of listeners out there who hang out at www.theusofe.com. That's the official BenAllOfAmerica.com message board. Once again, that's www.theusofe.com. T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Pretty simple. Type it in. Go to the usofe.com. That's where we're at. It is the United States of Esoterica, the banalofamerica.com message board. Go there if you got questions about the audio series, you want to discuss the episodes with other listeners. Some guests pop in every now and again. You never know who's going to show up at the usofe.com. So if that's your thing, if you like the message boards, check it out. And if you're a long-time listener of Been All of America Audio and you want to help us defray some of the costs of producing the audio series, click the PayPal button at BenAllOfAmerica.com. You can find it on the main page or on the Been All of America Audio page, either one. Click the button, donate a little dough, throw some change in the bucket, whatever you can do. Don't break the bank, but if you can help out, we greatly appreciate it. Next week on the show, the amazing author of the Federal Reserve Exposé, Thieves in the Temple, Andre Eglishan, turns his critical eye towards the national security apparatus with his new book, Where the Right Went Wrong, on national security and the left, too. And he's coming to Banal of America Audio to discuss it with us. I read the book last week. Andre wrote the book. We sat down and talked about it last night. I taped the interview. It's going to be at BenAllOfAmerica.com next week. In the interview, we're going to be talking about Operation Ajax in Iran and how it probably caused the Iranian angst with America, the NSC, NSA, and how it is used to circumvent Congress and their war powers, Iran-Contra, the war on terror, diplomatic exceptionalism, the mark of the beast, where things may be headed for the future, and tons more. It's a must-hear edition of Manal of America Audio with a true visionary of the big picture, Andre Eglishan. It's going to be next week at manalofamerica.com, 4 that's the date, be there or be square, at Banal of America.
voiceofamerica.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I got nothing left to say. Enjoy the weekend. Have a great holiday if you celebrate it. You'll be hearing from me next week. This is Tim Benall, signing off.